Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll uh, continue with the Hermit of the Month. Um, as you can tell, I've lost my voice. So we'll try our best. <laughs> um, but I might be dropping out on the high notes. So <laughs> just just so you're aware. <laughs> Jerusalem, the golden with milk and honey blessed, the promise of salvation, the place of peace and rest. We know not, oh, we know not, what joys await us there. The radiant sea of glory, the bliss beyond compare. Within those walls of Zion sounds forth a joyful song as saints join with the angels and all the martyr throng. The princes ever with them, the night is serene. The city of the blessed shines bright with glorious sheen. Around the throne of David, the saints from Kerry raise loud their songs of triumph to celebrate the feast. They sing to Christ as leader who conquered in the fight, who won for them forever their gleaming robes of white. O sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect, O sweet and blessed country that faithful hearts expect. In mercy, Jesus, bring us to eternal rest with you and God the Father and Spirit ever blessed. We'll continue with the um, catechism and Bible memory work. Still going through the table of duties. So what does the Bible say about widows? This is from 1 Timothy 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, 
and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Do you guys have that? Yes. Yeah. No, we forgot to read with you. Oh, okay. We'll start at the beginning. Then. <laughs> I, I was like, do I have Sorry, a different? I thought I had a different bolt than everyone else. I mean, I could be going crazy. It's you know, it's possible. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. 1 Timothy 5, 5-6. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Um, for the hymn of the month, I wanted to point out something. I uh, One final piece of imagery I noticed in this hymn uh, that I think is very beautiful. And that is uh, Christ as a victor and leader, especially in stanza three. And it made, made me think of a certain Bible story. I don't know if it's actually supposed to be an exact reference or not. But around the throne of David, the saints from care released raise loud their songs of triumph to celebrate the feast. They sing to Christ their leader who conquered in the fight, who won for them forever their gleaming robes of white. Anyone have a guess as to what Bible story, it's a popular kids Bible story, that makes me think of? It made me think of David and Goliath. Around the throne of David, okay, so we have the connection from Christ to David, or from David to Christ, that Christ is our um, new David. He's the one who sits on the, this is going to come up in both Bible study today and in the <laughs> sermon um, today from Jeremiah chapter 23. That, that if you remember that promise from 2 Samuel 7, um, very important passage in the Old Testament, that the throne of David is going to last forever. And that there's going to be an eternal kingdom from the line of David that's uh, coming. And of course, that's the messianic kingdom and, and Christ is that, that king. Well, David is 
an image of Christ and in that way. And when we see um, all these stories about David, uh, including David and Goliath, for instance, what we're seeing is a story of Christ. Right. David conquers the, the giant um, and he conquers the, the enemy. And the Israelites then are uh, they win the battle against their their enemy and they're able to go um, and they they go and plunder the. Um, what's. What ethnicity is Goliath? Does anyone remember? Uh, no. It's not the Persians. Yeah, Phil- Philistines. Yeah. yeah, they go and plunder the Philistines. Well, this stands in this hymn. Uh, it, it does make that connection, right? They sing to Christ. So it's at the throne of David. The saints from Cary were released. They raise their loud songs of triumph to celebrate the feast. So I... Picture in my head then the Israelites um, raising their song of triumph after David slings the rock at Goliath. They sing to Christ, their leader, who conquered in the fight, who won for them forever their gleaming robes of white. So that David and Goliath is an image of of Christ defeating the devil, right? Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes when David and Goliath is taught to kids, you know, it's taught as this kind of moral story about courage. Um <clears throat> And so on and so forth, but it's not just a moral story; it's a story about Jesus and the and the forgiveness of sins. And so I don't know if um, Bernard of Cluny, who wrote this hymn, this is a really old hymn, by the way. I don't know if I ever said that, but this is like a. Um, I'll give you the years, so I don't. I'm not just guessing, but uh, Bernard of Cluny was a early medieval hymn writer. So this is a very old hymn. But anyway, um, I don't know if he had David and Goliath in mind when he wrote this, but it did make me think of that. I told this insight to Rebecca, and she was like, that's not what it's about. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh, 12th century. Bernard of Cluny was 12th century, so 1300s. All right. Yeah. Old Latin hymn. Our hymnal has stuff from every century in it, which I, I think is good. I, I don't like it when people just, uh, whenever people who don't like hymns for whatever reason will say things like, oh, you just like old Lutheran hymns. Well, our hymnal has stuff from every century, starting with the Bible. So up until stuff written just before 2006 when the hymnal was published. So it's not really a matter of like when things were written. But anyway, that's a side note. But any uh, questions on the hymn? We'll have uh, either an Advent or a, I think an Advent hymn probably. Probably whatever we're going to do every week for um, the midweeks is it'll be, be our hymn of the month next next month. Um, I, I can't remember. I can't remember. I can never decide what to do for the hymn of the months during November, December, and January because um, the church year doesn't exactly line up with the months, right? So in December, should it be Advent or Christmas? Most of the most of December is Advent, but then people think of Christmas for December, 
And then January, should it be Epiphany or Christmas? And yeah, anyway. Um, I hope that you can hear me okay. Uh, as you can tell, I've lost my voice. I pretty much lost my voice by the time I got to the cemetery on Friday. So um, it hasn't really come back yet. But if you can't hear me, then you can go back and listen to the recording later, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but this is about as loud as I'm going to get today. For the uh, catechism memory work, we have a, um instruction to widows. And I'm actually trying to remember what to look if Luther... If this is the only verse he gives for widows or if there's more because there's more in the Bible about widows than just this verse. Let's see what all verses he gives here. Yeah, it's just this one, which is good. Um, so when it comes to uh, being a widow, uh, the New Testament gives um, just like it gives certain instructions to fathers and mothers and children and um, to all sorts of kind of family situations. Where are we at here? First Timothy. Um, it also gives advice uh, to widows. So I'm going to read um, the context of this because I think this phrase, she who is truly a widow, doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't have the context. Here. So this is starting at verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left all alone, trust in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And, the, and these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of the household, of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Um, and then there's, uh, I, I, he, he goes on to talk more about widows, which I'll address in a second. But the idea of being truly a widow there is that um, whenever the Bible gives commands about you see in the Old Testament all the time, right, these commands to care for the widows and orphans. And um, it's talking about this idea of a widow, uh, a lady who is older, whose children are um, grown or away, right? So <coughs> if a widow has children or grandchildren, uh, Paul says, then let her – learn to show piety at home first and and to repay their parents. So what he's saying is that if there's a widow who loses her husband, but if she still has people to care for as the as the, the a matriarchal figure of the household, if she still has um, if, if she's still able to be a mother um, in some way to her children or grandchildren, then she should still focus on those vocations. Right? She shouldn't um, go off and say, uh, you know, um, just say, well, now that my husband's gone, I, I'll, I'll just go and kind of live however I want, right? 
she still has vocation she needs to take care of. So um, in some sense, she's not really a widow um, if she still has children and grandchildren at, at home uh, that, that she can take care of. Now, if there is really a widow who's um, kind of truly alone, um, that there's no other there, – there's very limited family around. There's no one that she has a vocation to, um, which is this, this the more kind of biblical idea of a widow, that there's um, – she's by herself. She has no, no family left. Then she should devote herself uh, to prayer and, and supplications, right? She shouldn't just uh, – Live unto herself, but should um, uh, be being self-indulgent, but should uh, devote her life uh, to prayer. And um, that's where the idea of in the early church where deaconesses came from. Deaconesses were in the early church widows who uh, became these kind of mercy workers of the church who would go and say – Visit the um, they'd kind of visit shut-ins like I visit shut-ins, but they would do stuff like help them clean their house or um, clean their wounds even, or help take care of them with this kind of mercy work um, that we have today, uh, or that that sorry not that we have today um, that do this kind of mercy work. So that's where widow that's excuse me, that's where deaconesses came from in the early church. That term has been used differently now throughout the history of the. Of the church, um, there are some deaconesses in the Lutheran Church, and uh, that do a variety of things. It's become probably more of an administrative thing than a mercy work thing in some ways. But um, the idea is that it's supposed to be widows who do mercy work, um, and that's what Timothy goes on to talk about in chapter five. Is um, verse, so this is at verse nine, which is where we left off. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Um, so this he's talking basically about deaconesses. Um, he's saying if we're going to take these kind of widows in to be these ones who devote their life to prayer, kind of the old idea of like nuns um, or deaconesses, the, the number. Um, if she's been reported well for – Good works, if she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So, so the widows who are 60 and over um, are called to this life of mercy work in the church. The widows who are younger but refuse the younger widows um, because for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry – having condemnation because they cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire the younger widows marry, bear children, and manage the house, giving no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproach, reproachfully. Um, so what Paul is saying is that, and this is kind of the summary of what he says in verses 5 and 6, which is the memory work, is that an older widow has lived a life of good works, and she can devote her life to the church. A younger widow should get remarried because if um, she goes off and lives by her by herself um, while she's still basically of childbearing age, he's saying, then um, 
and she doesn't have that that leadership of a of a husband and that structure of a household, then um, it's likely she's going to cast off the faith and become a, a gossiper and a busybody, um, going from, as he says, from house to house. I I just heard someone talking about this verse recently, and they were saying um, that. There are women who still do this. They just don't literally go from house to house. They go from house to house, seeing what people are up to on Facebook. <laughs> they just don't. They don't. They don't do it, you know, physically um, by visiting different houses, but they do it electronically, um, which is probably true. So. Yeah. Uh, but you can see there. Um, Anyway, it's it's all it's all very interesting because I mean it's we don't really talk about like what widows should do with their lives um, in the church. I feel like a lot, even though Paul gives this basically chapter long discussion of it in First Timothy. But you can see there um, that what we've talked about many times before that that there are there is a structure to God's order of creation and that um, like we talked about uh, with young men and with youth I think last week that different people in different stages of life and even depending on things like um, if they're a man or a woman are given to different kinds of sins or tempted by different kinds of sins now everyone's tempted by all sin basically at some point but um, the sins that are most tempting to someone can be dependent on context. So widows are tempted differently than young men are tempted. Young men are tempted to pride. Um, young widows are tempted to busybodiness and gossip. So um, what Paul's advice is, is to make sure you're putting yourself in the correct structure of the Christian household um, or the Christian church so that you can guard against those temptations. That um, you put yourself where God has given the advice, um, God has given the wisdom of, of what you should be doing with your life. So um, in, in God's order of marriage, right, women are uh, to be uh, – in charge of the household, right, to manage the household. And so that's what Timothy says about the younger widows. He says, I want them to get remarried, to have the children, and to, to manage the household just like any other woman would. And that's going to protect um, against some of these temptations to sin. So it's something to think about that putting yourself in the structures which God has created for you is a way to guard against whatever temptations of sin might might come. Any questions on that? Well, I guess all scripture is inspired by God, but it doesn't say this is Jesus' word, it says it's Paul's word, right? So, you know, we're going by what Paul says, not necessarily directly from God, I guess. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? I'm not doubting you. Just... Yeah, so the 
All so for um Second Timothy three says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness. So all scripture, even though it has different human authors, um, is the words of God. Uh, that that's the doctrine of inspiration. So there are times where Paul says something like, I'm giving this to you as human advice and not as a direct command from God. So there are things in so he does that in First Corinthians chapter seven, right before he says, I wish that everyone were like me and could just be and I think he's specifically talking about people who are pastors there, but when he says uh, it would be better if everyone were just like me and could just be single. I think Paul was actually a widower. But um, if everyone could be like me and be single, and then they could devote their whole life to the ministry of the gospel. But that's unrealistic, and he knows that, right? But he says right before that, he says, I say this to you not as a command from God, but as human advice. And so we can make a distinction that, that, that in, in that, that scripture is um, – it is still inspired, but it is not – there's a distinction. There's a, um, there's a distinction in scripture between what we call – uh, prescriptive scripture and descriptive scripture. So all of the Bible is useful for teaching and for uh, teaching us doctrine, for training us in righteousness, for correcting us in our errors, and for rebuking us from our sins. <coughs> And for comforting us um, in our sufferings. But just because something is in scripture doesn't mean that it's saying – so like when you get a prescription from the doctor, what is, what is the prescription? It's that you would go and take the medicine, right? That it's something that you have to go and do. Right. A description – a description of something is just explaining something that happened or tell it, telling about the way something was, um, right? So it's just an image. So there are things in scripture that are prescriptive and things that are descriptive. And sometimes the Bible is prescribing things to us. It's telling us what we need to do, right? So Ten Commandments, right? Those are prescriptive commandments. You shall not murder, right? Yeah. You shall not commit adultery. What Paul says there in 1 Timothy 5 about widows, that's all prescriptive. He's saying this is what you should do if you're a widow. Um, and he doesn't qualify it with 
that I'm just giving this advice. This isn't a command from God. I think he's, I think he's being pretty serious about it. Um, the, there are descriptive parts of scripture, right? So um, David and Goliath, that's a, that's a descriptive story. It's not telling us that we should all go collect smooth rocks and get a slingshot and try and find giants and, and try and knock them down, right, and kill them and cut off their heads. So we always have to be pay attention um, that we're not taking things that are descriptive and trying to make them prescriptive, right? Or taking things that are prescriptive and trying to make them descriptive. Mm-hmm. So, um, this comes up. Uh, an easy, an easy example of this is in the sacraments. That Jesus says, "Do this in remembrance of me." That's a prescription, right? He's he's prescribing that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So whenever someone says. Um, it's just a symbol or we don't need to do it that often um, or it doesn't really matter that's just something that Jesus did with his disciples way back in when um, they're trying to make it descriptive right uh, when Jesus said actually do this in remembrance of me or um, with Infant baptism, right? Jesus prescribes baptism. He doesn't give an age limit on it or an age minimum on it. When people say that, well, there's no example of an infant being baptized in the Bible. Yeah, fine. All the descriptions of baptism in the Bible involve adults, but... Well, that's not even necessarily true. Um, there are instances of families being baptized in the Bible. We just don't know what age they all were. But anyway, but they're basing something on descriptive evidence alone and not on the prescriptions that Jesus gives about baptism. Right. So um, that's an important distinction. But I would say that. You can, you can tell when something is prescriptive or descriptive based on context, but oftentimes people will write off things as descriptive whenever they don't want to deal with it, right? So when stuff comes up about homosexuality or about um, the role of women in the church or something like that that's controversial, they'll – You've probably heard this argument before. Oh, that was back then. This is now. That was just the culture back then. Well, that's trying to make something that is clearly prescriptive based on context into a description of something in the past. Um, And we would say, no, um, Paul's words – just because they were written a long time ago doesn't make them any less prescriptive. 
because they're also the Holy Spirit's words, and God's word is authoritative for our lives. So, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? I never thought of that before, that those two distinctions. Yeah, it is, it's, it's a helpful distinction, definitely. All right. Well, let's open up then to uh, – is really the time? Yeah. Well, how about that? <laughs> well, we didn't start right away. To uh, 1 Kings 15, and uh, yeah, we'll look at 1 Kings 15 first. So – we're continuing in Bible history with our summary of uh, the kings of Judah. And after Rehoboam, who we fi- finished up last week, um, his son Abijam, also referred to as Abijah in Second Chronicles. So in First Kings, he's Abijam. In Second Chronicles, he's Abijah. For whatever reason, um, in First Kings, his mom's name is Makah in Second Chronicles, his mom's name is Micaiah or something like that, mm. if I remember right. Um, so sometimes these things happen. It's like, um, well, like in English, how you can have um, Ashley spelled L-E-Y or L-E-I-G-H or whatever that other mm. spelling is, right? Like you can have different spellings things so of the same thing. Um, or My- Myers, and there's like 18 different ways to spell Myers. I, I know because people have always spelled it different ways whenever they write <laughs> my name down. Um, so uh, that's that's just language for you. So anyway, all right. So in First Kings 15, one through eight, we just kind of get this summary of Abijah Abijam's life. Um, so. First of all, notice that his uh, mother is Makah, who we talked about uh, last um, week, who was the granddaughter of whom? Does anyone remember? Makah was the granddaughter of um, of David's – so great-granddaughter of David, um, granddaughter of Absalom. So Absalom was one of David's sons. Um, um, that's not right. It's uh, And here it uh, says he was a daughter. So. Yeah, daughter. yeah, so sometimes um, daughter – yeah, okay. So th- this is an interesting thing. Um, maybe it's not that interesting. It's kind of interesting to me. But um, Christ was the son of David. He's in the line, right? So it's a genealogical term. Um, Christ was many, many generations after David, right? Um, Or our father Abraham in the Bible, right? You often hear our father Abraham, people talking generations well after. So literally, if you do the genealogy work um, in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles – um, and in Second Samuel, it, um, Makkah is the daughter or granddaughter of Absalom. <coughs> but 
um, the Hebrew word is um, just daughter. So the liter- more literal translations will sometimes say daughter. If they want to be clearer, they'll say granddaughter. Mm-hmm. But Makah is the granddaughter of Absalom. But Absalom, remember, is the son of David who tries to overthrow David, who David um, is saddened by. But David never, um, even though David rightfully could retaliate against Absalom, he never does. And um, he uh, weeps at Absalom's death. But the idea there is um, that we also saw with Rehoboam is uh, one of rebellion that uh, remember with Rehoboam and Maka is um, Maka was Rehoboam's favorite wife of all his wives the the granddaughter of the rebellious Absalom and so you get this image of rebellion through the generations um, through the line of David All right, so what we get next in verse 3 is that he walked in the sins of his father, Rehoboam. So remember, the sins of Rehoboam were continuing the sins of Solomon. And the sins of Solomon were that he had um, increased these taxes on the people. And he had set up shrines uh, to the various false gods of all his different wives in the um, land of his kingdom. And uh, the kingdom had divided under Rehoboam. And um, now um, Abijam is going to continue in the sins of Rehoboam, which means he's going to continue with these shrines. He's going to continue with um, being... Uh, harsh to his people and uh, a bad king. And um, this is going to be important when we look in Second Chronicles at uh, what, what he does um, exactly. Because when you read Second Chronicles, Abijam doesn't seem so bad. But then when we see this verse in First Kings, we, we realize um, what's, it clues us into what's really going on. Um, but he walked in the sins of his father, Rabboam, and I like this line here in verse 3, for his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, um, as was the heart of his father, David. So, see, there you, you get that thing where he says his father, David, even though he's multiple generations down from David. His father is actually Rehoboam. Um, but... Um, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. His heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God. And especially contrasted with David there um, is an interesting thing because, well, we'll, we'll just move on. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. This contrast with David continues because what the author of 1 Kings wants to do here is show the importance of that 2 Samuel 7 that we talked about earlier. That the line of David, remember back when Jacob gave the blessings to his uh, 
Jacob, also named Israel, gave the blessings to his 12 sons. Where was the Messiah going to come from? The tribe of Judah. Judah. And David is of the tribe of Judah. And then we get the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the the Messianic kingdom is going to come from the line of David. So we have the, the line of Judah and the line of David. And we have the tribe of Judah here um, and Benjamin, the kingdom of Judah and Benjamin and the king. And the question is, where is this king? Right. Where is the line of the tribe of Judah? Where is the Messiah? And um, this gets brought up here that for David's sake, the Lord, his God, Gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. So God's going to keep this kingdom going. Even though Abijam is not devoted to the Lord, even though he's not the Messiah, even though he's definitely not um, doing what he should, continuing in the sense of Rehoboam, he's going to keep the line of David going. Um. He's going to keep the line of David going. Okay. And then uh, we're told that there's war between uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. And um, then that war continues between Abijam and, Re- and, Re- and Jeroboam. So Jeroboam, remember, is the, the king who – the first king of Israel who departed um, from the United Kingdom and, and – that's how the kingdom became divided. So if you look at the um, divided kingdom chart that we've looked at multiple times, you can see that Jeroboam is king the whole time of Rehoboam and Abijah. So Abijah and Rehoboam uh, serve um, both during Jeroboam's reign. So um, they're interaction with Israel is both Rehoboam and Abijah's interaction with Israel is with Jeroboam, if that makes sense. So that's something else to be on the lookout for. So that's kind of the summary from First Kings of Abijah's life. Now let's turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 13, which is uh, more than just eight verses. It's a whole chapter devoted to Abijah, where we're going to learn more about what's going on here. Okay, so um, Abijah, like we just said, is going to continue warring against – obviously Jeroboam and Rehoboam fought with one another. That's why the kingdom was divided. Well, Abijah is going to take up that uh, fight against the northern kingdom, against Israel, and he's going to take up that – that reign of Rehoboam, and he's going to continue to war against uh, Jeroboam militarily now. So when we talked about Jeroboam back way back when we did uh, Israel's kings, this came up. But this is the time when um, Judah is actually going to defeat um, part of Israel, right? They're going to win these battles. And they take over Bethel for a time. Uh, so we'll get to that in just a second. But one thing – the first thing to notice here, um, whenever they war against one another – so there was war between Abijah and 
Jeroboam, this is verses 2 and 3. Uh, Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors for 100,000 choice men. Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. So he has twice as many men. He does have twice as many men, and he's going to lose um, because God's going to give Judah the victory here. So this is an interesting thing is the first thing to note is that this is what we call um, – this is what's kind of sad about what's going on in uh, Russia and the Ukraine is that this is a brother's war, right? Or like you can also think about the American Civil War. Um, this is a brother's war. These people are related to one another. That's always kind of worse than – when it's not a brother's war, right? Um, because brothers shouldn't fight. It doesn't really need an apostrophe. Um, brothers shouldn't fight this way against one another. Brothers should be united with one another. And this war was not commanded by God. Okay, so God does command war sometimes. And he will command, for instance, that like in the book of Judges – um, or in the book of Joshua, whenever they go into the land of Canaan, that they war against these people and plunder them and take them over, right? God commands that. He doesn't command this war. These are his people, right? The 12 tribes. They should not be warring against one another. So there's already a problem here. God doesn't want this war going on. But then... Verse 4, Abijah stands on Mount Zemarim, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, and he gives this speech. And he gives this speech condemning um, Jeroboam and Israel, the northern kingdom, for all of their unfaithfulness to the God of Israel. Um, he condemns them. For their golden calf worship. And uh, he goes on and on about how uh, he talks about kind of 2 Samuel 7 and how he's of the line of David and how God promised that um, the, the line of David would last forever. And um, he goes on about how they have Jerusalem and they have uh, the Levites and the priests on their side. And now they're doing what God said, but Jeroboam and his people rebelled against the true God of Israel. Now, all of that sounds kind of good, right? All of it sounds like those are fair critiques of Jeroboam and of the people of Israel, and they are. However, he's only giving one side of the story, right? He's pretending like... They, remember what they've done, right? Remember what Rehoboam and, and uh, Abijam have done, and Solomon for that matter. They've set up all these shrines to false gods in, in Judah. And they're pretending like the southern kingdom doesn't have any false gods here. So um, if you look at verse 10, for instance, um, but as for us, The Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. 
And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron and the Levites attend to their duties. You have forsaken him. What are you talking about? Um, he, he lies, right? So let me uh, tell the rest of the story first, and then we'll get to applications. So Abijah gives a speech where he condemns Israel for the right things, but he he's sitting up on his high horse, and he pretends like they haven't done anything wrong. Regardless, God does give them the victory. He does protect the line of David. Um, Abijah is right about that. And when he gives them the uh, victory, what should God expect them to do? Well, he should expect them to act on what Abijah just said. So... Remember, um, Israel has two golden calves set up. They have they have golden calf worship, and um, one of those golden calves is in the city of Bethel, which is a border city between Israel and Judah. And this is uh, when Judah captures Bethel. Well, when Judah captures Bethel, after Abijah just got on his high horse and and condemned them for their golden calf worship, what should he do? He should destroy the Dagon golden calf. He doesn't. He doesn't destroy it. Um, you have to fast forward ahead, but it's not going to be till 300 years later when we find out that King Josiah, who's one of the good kings of Judah, actually gets around to destroying the golden calf. Okay, so um, Abijah, if you go back again to 1 Kings 15 verse 3, Abijah is not devoted to the Lord his God. His heart is not in the right place. He pretends like it is, but it's not. Okay. It's 10 o'clock. Okay. Uh, we'll pick up applications from there uh, next week. But we're going to talk about how Abijah is basically a Pharisee. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to be the everlasting king from the line of David. We pray that we would worship him forever. We pray that you would bless our worship today in spirit and truth. We thank you for bringing us to this uh, time of the church year, this Advent, uh, where we look forward to the coming of Christ. We pray that you would uh, help us to uh, see your coming to us in the flesh through the incarnation, you're coming to us now in your word and sacraments and your final coming at the end of the age to judge both the living and the dead. We pray that you would keep this before our eyes and help us to see our salvation in you through his coming. We pray this through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.